everyone. This is Catherine Adams. And Elizabeth Wallace. And also with us today, special guest. Hello, it's Hannah Wallace. Yay! And you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 208. It is 208. Yeah, right? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Um... Boy, we have been meaning to talk about this for a while, but we had to wait until Catherine got caught up. But tonight's episode is talking all about seasons one and two of Fleabag. Our Lord and Savior, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And also, uh, Moriarty is... Adam Scott. Thank you. And Olivia Wilde. Sorry, Hannah meant Olivia Coleman there, but we're fans of Olivia Wilde, too. Uh, The triumvirate that will rule the world. Oh, my goodness. The godmother, the daughter, and the holy priest. The hot priest. The hot priest. (laughs) I could have got that better. That's the thing that I didn't realize until I was most of the way through the series. And if you haven't watched this show, spoiler warnings, you need to watch the show. We're going to talk about everything. We're going to spoil it. It's been out for a while. We haven't seen it yet. Yeah, you really... And all the episodes are so short. It's six episodes a season, and they're all just a little bit less than a half an hour you can blow through it in no time at in a all. day it's like watching two movies in yeah a day. Just pretty much it. which yeah. is close to what i did with this actually i mean for mm. season one i literally sat down to watch episode four and watch four five and six and then i was like and now i have to start the second season oh man but i didn't realize until i was most of the way through very few people on the show actually have names and it wasn't until the wedding towards the end when the godmother said something to the father and she's like oh i'm I'm so sorry, I just always call you darling. And then they brush past that. I'm like, ha ha, she doesn't know his name. I went, wait, we don't know his name. Oh my God. <laughs> so wait a minute. So some of the people who have names are like Claire and her husband Claire. Martin and mm-hmm. Boo, which isn't mm-hmm. her actual name, I don't think, but that's the only way we, we know who she is. Also her ex-boyfriend, Harry, he had a name. Oh, Harry. Yeah, yep. Harry had a name. Who now else? the, the hot him? boyfriend that she was sleeping with in the very first episode, he's <laughs> basically fucked me in the ass, right? He's called Arsehole Man. On oh, the okay. Credits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, it's so hard to figure out where to start with this show. We well, yeah. should do a summary of what it's about if, if people haven't seen it. Go for it. You start. Oh, yeah. ha, ha, ha. Welcome to that. <laughs> you volunteered. Uh, so it's actually, it's, it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's based on a one-woman show that she wrote herself and performed. Um, and it's about a, the main character is Fleabag, though nobody calls her that. It's mm-hmm. just the, the how she's referred to in the materials. And um, she's just this like late 20s smart ass slash fuck up and it's mm-hmm. her dealings with her family where she's you know has some the usual problematic relationships with her family and she's also a sexual compulsive so she has trouble making emotional connections to people and so right. one of the big defining parts about how this is filmed is that she um she takes to the camera she, she breaks the fourth wall and, and includes the audience in on her own personal thoughts and that, that sort of you know, in the first season when she's mourning the loss of Boo, her, her best friend, um, the audience becomes that kind of stand-in for her emotional vulnerability. That's the only, those are the only, we're the only people, we're her best friends now, We so. are. Which becomes even more obvious in the second season when it's like the audience becomes another character. Yes. Because weird things start happening with her relationship with a Catholic priest, and she's always turning and making asides to the camera, and yet somehow the priest knows that this is happening and wants to know who she's talking to. And they don't ever actually explain that, except it's kind of the idea that this is somebody that she's got more of an emotional attachment to than anybody else she's talked to. So, of course, he picks up what she's feeling and thinking. Well, he, he's noticing, I mean, she uses it as a way of checking out with most of her conversations. Right. That she's, she's distancing herself from the people that she's talking to by... By commenting on her own experience to us, the audience, right? Like he's the one who who calls her out on 
checking out of their conversations. And they kind of started to set that up because, God, her father gave her something in the first episode of the second season. It's like a little present. It's a little thank you. What he bought her was a session with a therapist, which Mm -hmm. is just like, yes, useful, but also, ouch. But she goes to talk to the therapist, actually, supposedly, so she can just get the money. She doesn't really want the therapy session. But she actually, the therapist says something like, you know, do you have friends? She's like, I have friends. Of course I have friends. And she looks right at us. She's like, of course I have friends. And you, at that moment... I, more than ever, I really was like, oh my God, we really are her friends. And I felt so <laughs> included in that moment. But then I noticed when they had the funeral towards the end of the second season, she was giving these looks at Boo every once in a while, these little reaction shots and everything. I'm like, oh wow, we really are the stand-in for Boo. You sure. know? She, all the shots that she gave us through all the seasons, that's what she was giving to Boo when Boo was still alive. Which is why it was so much more of a gut punch in the final season when we're no longer coming along with her on her conversations. Oh, I like, read, oh. there's, a, there's a great article in Vulture that actually, well, I listened to the Pop Culture Happy Hour nice. episode about this today and then they referred to it article Vulture, which I didn't, went and read, and they said, I think the last line is basically, yeah, it hurts because she's breaking up with us. Yes, that's exactly what I felt like. I was like, you can't, oh my God. You know? <laughs> and it was so nice, but at the same time, like I even asked Hannah at the end of it, because I had deliberately not read anything leading up to this. I wanted to be completely surprised, and I was like, so is there a season three in the works? And he was like, nope, this is all. Well, don't, yeah, don't. And I, even the, you know, everybody's commentary after the first season, because the first season was so good, was like, don't ruin this. You yeah. don't have to have more of a thing. Yeah. But she found a way to turn it on its ear even even more so and create... Actually, somebody in PCHH was saying... I could have done with a second season that was pretty much just like the first season. You, have that, you did have the suspense of, of what happened at the end of the first season, and you don't have the similar kind of storyline for the second season. So yeah. it is completely different and just as brilliant. So The fact that she took that breaking the fourth wall of the first season, which I didn't actually think needed an explanation. It sure. was just kind of there. But to make it into a plot point in the second season was so brilliant. It was really good. And Moriarty, excuse me, hot priest, he oh stole God. every damn scene that he was in. He was a revelation. I've only ever seen him in Sherlock before, but I loved him in this because he was just, I mean, that opening episode of the second season and when they're all having a very uncomfortable family dinner. And he's just like, fuck this and fuck that. But he's also very nice. So everyone yes. just like trusts him. But he didn't, he wasn't scared to throw things back at people. Like, yeah. you know, Martin and Claire talking about how they've been trying to have a baby or something. And Martin is saying something to Hot Priest. I can't remember what he said about like something like kneeling. It's like, isn't that hard on the balls? And Hot Priest says, well, not as hard as trying to get pregnant for five months. <laughs> Like, ah, and you could see Martin's reaction was kind of like a eh, and he just couldn't actually call him on it. But he was so, I mean, he was so nice and he was so sincere. I mean, that wonderful line was like, why would you believe something awful? You could believe something wonderful. And that was great. But oh my God, the scene in the confessional was like <gasps> off the charts sexy. It was really just, you know, in in a completely forbidden way, which is one of the reasons why it was so sexy. Well, it's also it's one of those, going back to the idea of her having to have an intimate connection with someone, that yeah. she's looking, she's talking to someone, again, whom she can't see. Yeah. So she's having, she's able to have that little bit of vulnerability because she's separate, and then they, then they, that's where they bridge the bridge right. the gap, so to speak. And when you get right down to it, I mean, 
it is actually really awful because she is at her most vulnerable. But that was just so completely sexy to him. He just could not resist. I mean, it was like her, knowing her the way he knew her, the fact that she opened up like that and confessed all those things, it was like the most amazing aphrodisiac he had ever had, which is kind of disturbing if it's a priest. I mean, you got it. I was not prepared to like that character. I didn't know who was, you know, portraying the character at the time, but I think it might have been Catherine Valente on Twitter talking about how she really didn't like his character just because of that, that almost predatory nature of, yeah. like, he he was, like, trying to push her away from wanting a sexual relationship, but at the same time not really pushing that hard because he seemed to really enjoy the connection that the two of them had. And then when she opens up like that and he just goes for sex, and, yeah, that... It's it's not great. The power dynamic is yeah. the one, yeah, maybe the one problematic thing, but I think it's, it's so hard because he's so charming, and I think all of us as with everything else uh, in the show that, you know, and she's very problematic in lots of ways. Yes. She behaves like a jerk, but she's still very charming. And I think that's what we can all appreciate is the, both the idea of you can be likable and also fuck everything up yes. all the time. So that we, I think we appreciate that. They're yeah. all so human, which is why it's cool because this show is such a balance of the completely realistic human nature with the magical realism that goes on. I mean, when the painting first falls off the wall when she's talking to him, he just sits there. I love it when he does that. And then it <laughs> keep friggin' happening, you know? I mean, it's just... There is something so, and even just, you know, her connection with us and him being able to pick up on that and the bit with the foxes. I love that. That was just magical at the ending, the fox Aww. showing up. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, so apparently they did, where did I learn this? They did try to film that with real foxes. Oh, I really? think it was an interview with her that I saw. And she was just like, yeah, we had two foxes. And like, one of them really didn't like the city. It was like the handler just being like, oh, yeah, sorry, she really doesn't like the city. And why did you, why is she a trained, they just had a real problem trying to get them to do anything. Sure, mm. sure. I honestly... I don't know, maybe it's because I was so overwhelmed by everything. So that was a CGI fox mm. at the end? Okay. Yeah, that's fair. But I honestly, I liked even better, though, the end of the episode where he had been talking about the foxes, and they're sitting there, and they're smiling, and then it just cuts off with them like, oh, my God! And like, you know that they just saw the foxes. But it was so, I've watched it twice now, and it's just brilliantly done. It's oh, so good. I had to, before we started recording, I had to sit down and watch the final episode another time. Oh, I was so afraid that the end of the episode was going to reveal that the entire thing had been a dream or a hallucination, oh, because geez, yeah. it was everything that I wanted. Everything! Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to land the stick the landing like that once, much less twice. And Like I said, it's like both, both seasons are so different and both of them end so perfectly which is why it's just like no don't don't do a third no, season don't no. feel tempted I mean I would trust her but um, it's fine but she even said that one of the only reasons why she did the second season was somehow she got the idea for that hook where the mm. idea of the breaking the fourth wall becomes the plot point and also she wrote that character with Andrew Scott in mind and it really shows I mean he just it, it just fit him so well and I love when he's uh, when he's calling her on checking out and then he notices uh, you know as it progresses he notices that she's looking somewhere and I think there's a scene in, the, in her cafe where where she the camera's positioned over his shoulder and she makes the little quick the little asides like they're not necessarily obvious take the cameras like sometimes she just breaks eye contact with the person and the camera's right next to their eyes but he notices that and whips his head around and looks at the camera and for a second you're like oh my god does he see us yes yes <laughs> it is so 
it's really hard to put my finger on everything that I loved about it. But Kat and I have talked about on this podcast before, just the fact that so many of the situations she gets into are so uncomfortable. But part of the breaking the fourth wall, that's part of what mitigates it. But we just last night watched the bit where the woman wins the award at the female business thing. And here Fleabag is like, I have to take that back from you. And she's like, why? And she's like, because it's stolen. It's my fault. And the woman's like, is it a long story? She's like, kind of. And then it jumps immediately to the bar and they're having drinks and she's told her the whole story and she thinks it's hilarious. And I'm like, I love all of that. I just thought that was the perfect thing. It's like, if anything could have diffused the tension better, I don't know what it is. The fact that by the time you see them again, they're in a bar, they're laughing together, they're obviously best friends now. And shout out to Chris and Scott Thomas for that. So yeah. She is so, it's funny how she was she was mentioning, you know, she has that line about how, you know, it's the one thing about growing older is that nobody flirts with her anymore. And Hannah's like, I don't know, sweetie, with those cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> for a second there, I was like, did you just confuse me with the flea bag? I'm like, no, 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 wait, I really did say that. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but it's so funny because in her character, you know, of course, Fleabag is how old? 28, 28? Well, I think she's supposed to be late 20s in the first season, and then it's been a year. Yeah, uh, okay. But then the- she asks Belinda, is who's the character's name, she asks her how old she is, and I think she says 58, I believe? I don't remember. Yeah, she's menopausal. Kristen Scott Thomas is 60 years old, so she looks really good. She does. She I love it when celebrities age gracefully because yeah. that whole, like, trying to claw some youth back always looks just awful and artificial. And then you see these people like Kristen Scott Thomas and Gillian Anderson and these people that Emma just Thompson. keep getting prettier as they get older. It's unfair, oh, but it's also very yeah. nice. And her whole speech in that section is about menopause and this yes. whole idea of like, no, it's really awesome. Like as opposed to this kind of, oh, poor me, I'm an, I'm growing older as a woman. It's very empowering, which yeah. is lovely. Which is, she was... Like, you you are waiting for that moment when, you know, she's been talking about women and they're born with pain and they do all this and and then you hit menopause and it's, and you see Fleabag just wincing and she's like, it's just, I forget the exact words, but she's like, it's just wonderful, you're free, you're not, you know, this process chained to a machine, chained to a body or whatever she says and it's just... I think Fleabag and the audience were surprised at the same time that she was like, it's just, it's a thing. And she's like, I thought it was horrendous. Oh, it is horrendous, but then it's wonderful. (laughs) And she delivered it so well. She really did. Now, if we can take a side trip to a character that's obviously not as appealing, the godmother. How did they just manage to make her so awful? It's tapping into that passive aggressiveness, and then it's Olivia Coleman. She's just brilliant. She is just amazing. We were just watching seasons of the crown the other night and so having those two characters juxtaposition in my head is just oh she is so so good i mean just that final episode where fleabag brings back the statue that they basically play hot potato with for all of the two seasons and you know the godmother just says something that should be very sweet it's just saying i'm it's amazing that you chose this piece to take because it was based on your mother and it was just like and it was obviously a real stab in the heart to Fleabag. And I was like, it's because the godmother keeps clawing this intimacy from Fleabag, like her dad making a plaster cast of her boyfriend hitting on her sexual partner, and now like a statue of her mother naked. I just, why so vindictive, do you think? Uh, she's just pure vitriol. And I was going to make a comment about how all the other characters are borderline unlikable but still human. And I think that she's at the far end of that spectrum, but there's something about... Almost the the fact that she's 
so unlikable also speaks to just how human she feels. You're just like, I know that bitch. And I don't <laughs> like that bitch. Oh, my God. I mean, every comment, there there was no compliment that wasn't a backhanded compliment at any time. Little digs here and there. It just... I heard that she took the role just because it was so different. I mean, it was a comedic role. But here's the thing. No, we, we can't pretend that Olivia Coleman hasn't done comedy. Olivia, Olivia Coleman's entire career has been comedy. Has on BBC. It? Yeah. Oh, all right, kids. So, so this is my ignorance of British culture because I know her from Broadchurch, Broadchurch right. which is the least comedic role that she could have possibly done. No, so she was, yeah, and I don't know, I don't seen the shows that she's in mm-hmm. but she was she was always been a comedian I know there's a very funny clip of her eating a banana that oh, I don't wow. I, I, I didn't even google I think if you google Olivia Cohen banana you'll probably find it and I bet I know which is the first role that you've seen her in Elizabeth she was in Doctor Who Patient Zero oh she was yep. that's right and that was not really a comedic role either it wasn't. the second thing I saw her in was the night manager and ah, she was yes. playing his handler the pregnant uh, cop who was it was funny I mean here she was she was a woman. She was a police officer or an investigator, I guess. Uh, some part of the government, I think, yeah. It's so interesting that it was kind of like with Fargo. Her character was pregnant, but the pregnancy didn't really have anything to do with the character. She just happened to be pregnant, you know? It was nicely done. But none of the roles that I've seen her in were ever comedic, so I'm completely ignorant of all Well, that. so she, yeah, so she, I mean, obviously she's gotten internationally famous, and I guess was only British famous, I'm using air quotes, uh, Inverted commas. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, but she, so when she started getting all this praise for Fleabag, for uh, The Crown, for The Favorites, for all the stuff that she's been, you know, that she's into our consciousness about, there was a headline somewhere, and I wish I would have looked it up, but it was something along the lines of, you know, she's finally gotten to a point where she's, it's going to sound worse than it actually was, but so basically she's finally doing real work with her career. She's oh, finally got yeah. to work. She's getting real work. And so one of the guys from, I think it was retweeted or he commented, one of the guys from uh, the Rule of Three podcast was like, you cannot discount someone's comedic talent. You cannot consider it something lesser. No. Um, and so that they're getting very angry at the idea that she's like, if she's gotten any credit for suddenly becoming a good actress, they're saying, no, she had this incredible comedic career and that, takes talent that takes absolutely as much talent not only that but just it's also because she just sort of jumped into people's consciousness all at once and they they have heard this a bunch of times and somebody took like 20 years to become an overnight success there's tons (laughs) of actors who've had that same way so she must have been just like no i've been doing a lot of stuff for a long time it just now got into like pop culture kind of well i think like i said i think she's She's been famous in England, yes, and in, in, in BBC stuff, right? But, but, but it's uh, suddenly, yes. yeah, Hollywood famous, maybe. right? Exactly. I wonder if Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston kind of feel the same way because you know they get into all the nerd world and everything. People are like, "Oh, who is this amazing person? Where do they come from?" They've been doing a lot of stuff for a very long time and they've worked very hard. Stage work, as long yeah. as she has. Of this course. is a weird tangent, and it can be cut. It's fine. But I was noting to at least one of you how unpopular James Corden is with British people that I've seen. I've seen people it's kind of make little... weird. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, yeah, I didn't know who he was, and he's just this, this sort of doughy, positive, late-night talk show host. I just saw a thing today that was about a profile of him, and someone was like, oh, it was a, this historian that I follow on Twitter who was just like, yeah, he was always pretty obnoxious, and I met him once, and he wasn't very nice, but I guess he's turned his life around. So apparently, when he was famous in England, he was 
much more of a dick than he is now. Really? Hmm. Apparently. I, and again, I just saw that today, so I haven't looked into it. But Well, just to tie it all back into the nerd world, the first place I ever saw him was an episode of Doctor Who. So, you know, <laughs> Which one was, was that? Uh, Stormageddon's father, the um, episode with... Oh, yeah! Uh, yeah. The line he has with the 11th Doctor that is so cool is that, you know, here it is, Matt Smith's character is being all crazy and intense and everything, and James Gordon's character goes... Do people ever tell you you're weird? And Matt Smith says, they never really stop. It's just a great interview. But he, he was very good on that. And then I see him all of a sudden as a late night talk show. And of course, I'm just like, oh, he got to be on Doctor Who. And people said he was good. And I had no idea of his career. I didn't either. That was, I was just wondering. I was like, do they... Like, he's so innocuous in the U.S. Yeah. That to hate him was like, well, that's a strong reaction. But now, yes, that makes more sense okay. if, he was, if yeah. he was, again, famous in England and kind of a jerk about Had it. Had a reputation. Yeah. So. Um, bringing it back to Fleabag. So I was re-watching a few episodes today. And the whole... No, I had another thought. Drink. Drink. What are you drinking, Gavin? Uh, honey whiskey. I never really stopped. What have you got, Hannah? So I was inviting that question because it's um, vodka soda with a dash of cranberry juice, which is a guilty feminist. Because oh, it's Deborah, okay. Deborah nice. Francis White's um, drink of choice, although apparently it has another name, too. And I've got one of Dad's Yingling beers, which I feel is just as strong as a Bud Light, but I like the taste a little it's bit probably better. stronger. You think? Yeah. It doesn't seem very strong. What is it? Bud Light's like It doesn't five. say. We keep looking at it. Sorry, I keep reading it. What does it actually say? I was going to say, so Deborah Francis White, just to make sure that I mention her in every conversation. Um, <laughs> in the, I think it's the, the last episode, the episode of season two of Fleabag with the wedding. Right. And the godmother is introducing these, her weird friends like her she's got like these very niche artisty friends and the yes. last person she introduces i don't know remember she says what his name is but he's so so he's a, a syrian refugee and it's actually uh he lives with deborah francis white and her husband tom and tom's one of the hosts of um best pick but he really is a syrian refugee and he needed a place to stay and they had an extra room in their apartment so Aww. and so she's like gotten to know him and she's gotten really like so over the last couple of years really involved in uh, refugee issues and causes uh, mm-hmm. in part through him. So it's, it's funny. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, just kind of, they got him a little bit part on Fleabag. Oh, <laughs> boy, there are a lot of people wandering in and out of those episodes. Oh, yes. my goodness. But, um, and that's why I was wondering, so the actress who played Claire, have we seen her someplace? Because I know what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking she looks like the character who was on Torchwood, who died, who was on Rome, who died, who was in Luther, who died. The really pretty, I don't know, I, I'm going to, I apologize, I don't know her name, but it's not that woman, so I don't I know. keep looking at her and thinking she looks a little bit like one of the contestants on the most recent season of The Great British Bake Off. Oh, she looks we exactly like that. Yeah, yeah, no, we and I actually, yeah. I put that on Twitter when I first, when we first started watching that, that season, and I tagged the contestant in it, and she retweeted me. And I, it's, I don't, it's certainly not the first time. <laughs> really striking. But she was so, her character... Sorry, like, Sean Clifford is the name of the yes, actress. Yes, thank you. She's... I don't know, she's so inherently unlikable in ways, but you just, your heart, I, I felt like my heart just went out to her all the time, especially in the episode where she's so mad at Fleabag, and here she is, she's in this brilliant, huge office, 
and is successful and making all this money and she's married and she's so furious with Fleabag because Fleabag is just inherently funny and always lands at her feet and people just seem to grab it and she's like you make me feel like I'm a failure and talk about a human reaction it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you've done with your life there's probably going to be somebody out there that you're just like I'm comparing myself to you and I feel like a failure but at the same time it may be really not like her all that much because that was the same scene where she admitted that she knew that her husband had tried to kiss Fleabag and not the other way around and she said she obviously wasn't backing Fleabag up on this because she said you'll be fine you'll always be fine the same way that she let Fleabag claim that she was the one who had a miscarriage to try to get Claire to the hospital because Claire was being stubborn because Claire's just so determined to not be a failure at anything she can't be a failure at her marriage she can't be a failure at having a baby and all that and it really I mean she kind of dumped it all on Fleabag there for a while which made the scene where she told everybody at the wedding it was my miscarriage carriage i was just like oh my oh. god it was like the sun coming out it's <laughs> oh, great and i just i felt like it was so much vindication for everything that fleabag had been just watching and i'm like i if i had written a fan fiction to satisfy myself after being so upset with how bad fleabag was treated at the end of the first season if i had written it myself i could not have plotted it any better than how they did it and i'm like all of this just everything that i wanted to happen happened somebody um pchh said that's um it doesn't involve any heavy lifting to watch it. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because it's not it's not that it's light. It's not that it's no. no frivolous or trivial or anything like that. It just you can sit down and it it disarms you so much and it does everything that's doing so effortlessly yes. that you can just watch it and you start to trust it. You just think this is this is just a river I'm gonna float on for a while, even yeah. though it is it is very dark in times or it's very shocking in times. It's just you don't have to when shows get popular, sometimes when people start to re- recommend them a lot, it starts to sound like um, people telling you to eat your vegetables. Yes, and like, yes. And not, and not everything that's popular is like that, of course, but this is definitely one of those. It's like, yeah, but just just don't even worry about it. No, just go ahead and watch it. We're talking a lot about like the themes and the messages and all the things and everything, but it's really just it's amazingly entertaining to sit back and watch it. And like I said, you know, horribly uncomfortable situations that happen that somehow get diffused in a way that if you feel bad, you don't feel awkward. Does right. that make sense? But at the same time, I was so close to turning off the TV and going to watch something else for a while when Fleabag picked up that award and dropped it and it shatters into a million <laughs> oh, pieces. I'm literally just... staring going, oh my God. Oh, I just hey, We watched it again last night. The shot is done so well because she picks it up and instantly slides right out of her fingers and so amazingly shatters all over the table. I was like, of course it did. And it, does, it doesn't give you a second to worry that that's going to happen. It no. doesn't give you a second to contemplate it. And the way she does it, it looks like a total accident. It just looks it's like what would happen. So well done. And of course, and Hannah, of course, mentioned when she's like running like crazy to go home and get something else to do it. And of course, she gets the statue of the naked lady that, of course, you find out later is her mom and everything. And Hannah's like, because of course, that's what she would think to bring. You know? <laughs> For it's a like, women's award. Yes. For a woman's award. Exactly. And then it all just turns out fine. You know, it's just. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of what. Claire always says about Fleabag, it's just like, hey, you will land on your feet. And the yeah. audience feels that way, too. It's yeah. like, these awful things will happen and we'll feel for you, but you'll be fine. Which is amazing. <laughs> At the very end, I mean, she's so distraught because you just, you really wanted everything to turn out fine with the priest. But at the same time, that would mean he would have given up something that was so important to him. 
and you couldn't have wished that on him. So even though you feel like he totally broke her heart, his heart was broken as well. And you're like, I think this is the only thing that could have happened. Oh, it's perfect, because otherwise, otherwise all the stuff that he says doesn't matter. Like, exactly. I hate that reversal of someone's personality at the end of a romantic comedy to just say, oh, actually, these things aren't important to me. Then it just it just erases all of the really interesting conversations they have about faith and relationships throughout the other episodes. And he backed up what he said in the beginning when he said that he didn't want to have sex with her because if he fell in love with her, his life would be fucked. And then at the end, he says, I love you too. And you can see that look of pain on his face when he realizes, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I read an article that it was sort of breaking down the moments of that episode and he she says you know I, I love you and he says it'll pass and even though she doesn't believe him and we don't believe him either that was the only thing he could say but oh, hang a second cat is walking around hopefully she will decide to, she's going to check out the drink. have some vodka, have some vodka. <laughs> she doesn't like people food but she doesn't seem to like people drinks either but she could surprise me the another interesting fun trick that they do with the uh, fourth wall breaking is when they have sex and you only see it for a second and you're used to her from the very first episode of season one talking to the audience while she's having sex with someone and all she does here is look at the camera and then knock the camera over yes exactly, exactly. Yeah. and then i noticed that when she had the fight with the priest when he left the cafe mm. watch this today they have the fight. She's walking along. She keeps looking over her shoulder at us and looking like she's trying to get away from us. And that kind of like starts to set up the fact that she's pulling away from this idea of having this audience. I kind of want to know what happened to Claire and Martin after all of that. But I guess if we leave it I like that, Claire that's fine. I think Claire and Claire lived happily ever after. Yes, I want yes, to believe that. But my God, that whole scene with Claire breaking up with Martin... And I, I realized after watching it that at no point does Martin say, I can change or offer in any way to change. Basically, his entire speech to Claire to try to stop her from leaving him is basically him saying, why can't you just love me for the awful person I will always be? There is a line to that effect that's that's very quotable where he's just like, I just, I, I'm not a bad person. I just have a terrible personality. Which is so, it's it's so, so yeah. And, you can, and that, like... That level of self-awareness is another thing where you're just like, you're not a cartoon villain. Like, yeah. you, there is that, that level of humanity there that still makes you, like, not someone that you want to spend time with. Mm-hmm. And I also kept on expecting, because in a traditional show, they would have some kind of explanation for why his son was so freaking creepy. And then <laughs> some kind of resolution for that. But no, he is just, I mean, he even mentions that. And it's like, he's creepy. He can't help it, you know? And it's just... That's oh, it. I root I mean, for the son. Does he, he plays the bassoon really well. He, he really, does. Um, he really does. I mean, he, I thought he was actually very sweet to Fleabag. Kind of gave her a hug and everything. That where's didn't Claire? seem creepy. Where's Claire? Well, that and he, he goes up to Claire at one point and says, tell her to leave him. And I read a mm. recap of that. It's like, it's something that, you know, the son and Fleabag have in common is they both hate his shitty dad. That was when, God, when Martin confronts her in the kitchen and he says something to Fleabag, and he's like, you know, is she going to leave me? Somehow, I was not expecting her to look at him and go, I hope so. You know? <laughs> I didn't expect that at all, and it was so satisfying. Yes. Oh. But I also like the fact that she's kind of, like, ripping him a new one. She looks at the camera, oh, this ranch is going really well, and she gets done and calls him a weekie, and she's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so good up until that. You didn't stick the landing, but you just... 
yeah, she made terrible choices. I every time I saw Boo, I don't know who they got to play Boo. I've never seen her in anything before. But she's one of her friends. She actually is one of really, her friends. I believe so. So eminently likable. And Just that scene she that she where she told a story about Boo and she's relating some story about some little boy that did something horrible to his guinea pig or something. <laughs> and Boo's reaction is the exact opposite of what you expect. She's actually mm-hmm. showing compassion for this child that she says he's obviously not a happy person. Happy people don't do that. They shouldn't have sent him away for that. And I thought... Happy people don't put pencils up guinea pigs. Guinea, guinea pigs ass, yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was just, I mean, and they did that so well. This idea that it was so believable that she would turn around and find compassion for the person yeah. that the rest of us are just pointing at and laughing. But then they pointed out, of course, at the funeral, you know, Fleabag, of course, is mourning her mother and says, I have all this love and I don't know what to do with it. And Boo's like, give it to me. And she laughs. She's like, no, I'm, I'm serious. It sounds lovely. You have to give it to someone. And you're like, which makes her end even more tragic because here it was Fleabag gave love to her mother and her mother died. She gives it to Boo and because of her own actions, Boo dies, which I still think one of the, like obviously the reveal of what she had done that caused Boo to commit suicide was so much of a gut punch. But in the end of the first episode when she's telling the cab driver, that delivery is just amazing. I mean, at one point, because of course Boo walks into traffic and they go really fast and three people died. What a dick. (laughs) Wow. It was, that's one of my favorite moments in the whole series. It's just amazing. Interesting observation also I got from PCHH was they just happened to mention that made me think about a comparison to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I know you guys don't have a lot of... No, I've only watched a little of it. But it's the same sort of, but it's, it's women trying to do better, yes. as they put it in PCHH. And also, but you have... I don't think this is really spoilers for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but basically you have a... It's a musical. They break into musical numbers, and eventually that does kind of come back to the main character's mindset about the world. And so right. it's about these women kind of avoiding intimacy by going into their own heads a little bit. And, nice. and trying to sort through things by going into their own heads. So. But I guess, I don't know, can either of you guys think of anything else you wanted to add? I mean, I feel like, once again, I could just spin my wheels for a while about this one and just say the same things over and over again. How It's just, it's really, it's a tragic comedy, you mm-hmm. know? I hadn't realized that. I thought it was like, oh, it's kind of a drama, but it's kind of a comedy. I'm like, actually, it gets really sad in places, but you really like it. <laughs> you just want to keep following Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yes, exactly. See what else what she does she next. she and Lin-Manuel Miranda... Oh my god! Well, Got together on something. I heard she wrote the. She was one of the writers behind Killing Eve, mm-hmm. which I've never. She's watched. Like, she created it. She. Because oh, I know a bunch of fan artists who have done fan art from that, which intrigued me, and now I find out that she's writing. It. Oh well, now I have to watch. It, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's going to wrap us up for the week, except for the fact that we have something a little new here. We'll do it really quick. But um, this episode is brought to you by Dunnan's Castle, and I'll tell you. Why? I have to ask you a question. Do you know anybody in your life who might even slightly be Scottish? Are they at all difficult to buy for? We have a solution. I was sitting next to somebody at a party, and they mentioned buying for one of their Scottish friends a square foot of a castle in Scotland as part of the restoration. I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. 
So we're going to put a link to this in the podcast description, but for a very small amount of money, you can donate towards the restoration of this castle and basically buy a square foot of land and somebody can be a laird of Scotland because they technically own part of this property now. And that's what we did for our dad. So our dad is now a Scottish landowner. Yes. Lord William Wallace. Laird, excuse me. English. (laughs) Laird William Wallace. Apparently Lord is if it's like a nobility title, but Laird kind of means landowner. Well, I think Laird is also probably Celtic. Also true. Yes, Yes, exactly. True, yeah. I looked it up. Just going to guess. I'm probably wrong about it. I looked it up, and if you actually buy this thing, you are legally entitled to call yourself Laird. It won't get you anything. Oh, of course not. still completely Oh, please don't walk into Scotland with an American accent and declare yourself a Laird. You will get your ass kicked. (laughs) No, but seriously, we just got the paperwork the other day. It was airmailed from Scotland. It has a little deed, and it's all nice writing, and it has a little wax stamp on the bottom with the seal, whatever. But um, we highly recommend it, and, you know, if you use our link to get there, they might actually kick a few bucks back to us. So, you know, this podcast can be sponsored by that. Yay! But uh, other than that, make sure to go to pixelatedgeek.com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the photo galleries. I don't know, Catherine, do we have Nightfell episodes next week? I think we do, actually. Uh, What is the first of February on a Saturday? So I think they might drop a new episode then. And Haley, you haven't listened to those, have you? No, I haven't. We should find some episodes. There's a lot of good standalone. Like, sometimes the long-running episodes are not as intriguing. It's kind of like with X-Files. You've got the mythology episodes, and then you've got the Monster of the Week, the Monster of the Week episodes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, anything. Most most shows I really appreciate. A good bottle episode. Yeah, exactly. You'd like that. But um, yeah, anyway, all that and more. Pixelatedgeek.com. And uh, thank you, Hannah, for joining us Woo! once again. Thank you once again for having me. Yeah, well, Hannah was the one who suggested this to us. Also, Dairy Girls, I believe, is the other Dairy one. Dairy Girls, go, if you, yes, go go a little bit north. Go to Northern Ireland for Dairy Girls. It's, it's not as dark. <laughs> it's just as funny and weird. And it plays on the history of the Troubles in the 90s in, uh, in Northern Ireland, which is fascinating to me. Nice. Yeah, because, of course, you know, you get done watching something in that stupid commercial one point where you're in the show hole. And I'm like, oh, I am in the show hole. Anyway, I'm sure we'll find something in the nerd world to talk about. But uh, one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to you all later. Good night.